I could not help but think a moment ago when the baptism was occurring for little Joseph Wayne of how a little baby was baptized on November the 11th, 1483. That's almost 10 years before America was discovered. And when that little baby was baptized, his parents acting upon the covenant of grace had dedicated him to the Lord. But as he began to grow into life, he sensed in his own heart a great need. And then when I thought about his birth, I also thought about the occasion of his death. He died in February 1546, when he was 63 years of age. And when he was dying, he said, we're all beggars. Martin Luther is really the one from whom we got that great expression about the spread of the gospel, that it is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. No better introduction could be made to the Reformation, really than simply that first of the Beatitudes, which says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, when Martin Luther was born into this world, he came into a world that was terribly afraid of death. He came into a world that was dominated by a tyrannical church which was clouded over with superstition and idolatry. He came into a miserable, unhappy world that had been decimated by the Black uh, Plague and where death was every place. And so as he began to grow and began to become aware of the world about him and to develop, he realized acutely that his own days were numbered. He had been taught that righteousness might be achieved somehow through the church. But the church had gotten a long, long way from the plain teaching of Scripture. And the church had become so encrusted with superstition that the beautiful frescoes which you've seen on television and in the copies of Newsweek and Time that have lately come out with the conclave of the cardinals in Rome, Every time you look at that grand uh, picture of Michelangelo's of the Transfiguration, you can think about what it cost. Because when Ma Master uh, Raphael and Michelangelo were being paid and the dome were, was being put over St. Peter's Cathedral, there had to be a great, what we would call, stewardship campaign. A fundraising event had to take place. And how would you raise funds to pay for all of this? And so Pope Leo X devised a very nice way of collecting money. In order to achieve righteousness, you had to work for it. There were certain people who wanted to be holy, and so they went into monasteries and became monks. There were women who wanted to be holy, so they went into nunneries or convents and became nuns. They dedicated themselves to prayers, uh, to vigils, and so they accrued more merit than they really needed. So all of this surplus merit was stored like our farm surplus is stored in a big granary called Rome. And the Pope could dispense this surplus merit to, to, to whomever he wished to dispense it. No one was thought to go immediately to hell if he were baptized but he would have to go through purgatory to purge away all the sins from the time in which he was baptized that had not been confessed.
And so in order to buy some time out of purgatory, he could buy indulgences. Now technically it wasn't really purchased, it was a gift. But the gift was made in the exact proportion to how much money you paid. And, and so this began to uh, be a common practice. Martin Luther, of course, had gone through law school, had taken a Master of Arts degree in law, but still he was unhappy in his soul. He had seen one of his friends die and he began to think about his own death and how he would be reconciled to God and there was a, a, a restlessness about him. In July 1505, on his way home from the big city of Erfurt, which was about 30,000 in population, he got into a thunderstorm and was struck down by a bolt of lightning and this frightened him, and so he screamed to the top of his voice, St. Anna, save me, and I'll become a monk. Now, he didn't say, Jesus, save me, because he felt that Jesus was a stern judge who was waiting just to cast him into the pit of hell. It never dreamed on him to cry out to God to save him, for God would deal in greater judgment than even Jesus. He wouldn't even call out to St. Mary to save him, but he would go to St. Anna because St. Anna, through some feminine form of logic, would speak to St. Mary and St. Mary would speak to Jesus and Jesus would speak to God and maybe this way a good word could be put in for him and somehow he could be saved. But he had to carry out his vow to be a monk and so he called all of his friends together and he gave away his books, and he bade them farewell at a feast, and he entered into an Augustinian uh, monastery. And he wanted desperately to achieve righteousness with God. Now, all of this comes under the theme of the poor in spirit, because the gospel brings a great message to the poor. But the church had forgotten it, and it was bringing a great message to the rich. The rich had a distinct advantage. They could buy more merit from the church. And this was so contrary to what Jesus had taught. Those matchless words which we read a moment ago, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This was a tremendous shock to the people round about. How could a poor man be blessed? You had to be rich to be blessed. And here, it, here is Jesus saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here is the church dispensing its merits to the rich. The crowd that stood around when Jesus spoke these words to the disciples were people who were going through a great depression. Many of them were out of work. That's why 5,000 men could be listening to his words when he would feed 5,000 men, the hungry multitude. How do you think 5,000 men would be there? They couldn't find any jobs. There was poverty. There was disease. There was ignorance. There was superstition. And there was death. There was a cruel dictator that ruled over them. There was oppression. And yet Jesus was bringing glorious good news to these people. 
And so the church in Martin Luther's day had gotten away from this. And so Luther wishes to bring, as he hungers in his own soul for salvation, he discovers the way of grace. It came about in this way when he had gotten into the monastery. He said of himself that when he first went there, if anyone had spoken a word against the Pope, he would have choked him to death with his own hands. He fasted until he almost died. He had himself beaten with whips in an effort to beat the sin out of him. He confessed so much that he was driving the people to whom he confessed nuts with the little things that he brought confessing. They would say, go away until you got something really worth listening to. He had a case of scruples. He was always worrying. Uh, someone wrote a little poem about it. Once in anguished passion, I said in silent grief, O oh Lord, uh, be merciful to me, for of sinners I am chief. Then stooped my guardian angel and whispered from behind, Vanity, my little man, you're nothing of the kind. Well, this, this, this is the way Luther felt. And so he was really beginning to, to get next to his superiors. But he had a wonderful uh, leader in the Lord who told him that he would send him on a, on a visit to holy Rome. And Luther thought that in Rome he would see the holiest city on all the face of the earth, that it would be like the New Jerusalem itself, and that there he would breathe the fresh air of God and be blessed and inspired. But when he got to Rome, he didn't find it that way. He found it all clouded with superstition. And when he went up to Scala Santa, the sacred stairs, on his face kissing each stair as he went, because he thought he could gain so many days out of purgatory if he did it, or so many years, he really didn't get that much blessing out of it. He had a feeling that it really wasn't so. And he was haunted by the scriptures. And all of this seemed to be so contrary to what little he knew of the scriptures. So then Martin Luther, when he was performing mass in Rome, one of the priests by him who wanted to rattle it off and get it over with punched Luther and said, get on with it. And Luther thought, this is holy Rome. He thought it's built over the pit of hell. He saw immorality and corruption that caused him to see the great discrepancies between what little of the gospel he knew and what he saw in the church about him. And so he went back to Germany still depressed. The vicar, who was his leader, said to him, Martin, you are very, very restless. But you have a good mind, and you will be a great son of the church, and so I am going to put you to reading the scriptures and teaching the Bible. And in reading the scriptures, I'll keep you so busy you won't have time to worry about your sins. So Luther began to study the scriptures, and he became the teacher in a little college that wasn't as big as Montreat Anderson College, in a little town named Wittenberg that wasn't as big as Black Mountain. It had less than 2,000 inhabitants. And so, by 1517, Luther had begun to lecture. He started lecturing in the Psalms. Now let me say this, when you're working with people and trying to get them to uh, come to a knowledge of the Lord and they won't read anything else in the Bible, get them to read the Psalms. 
You can't argue with the Psalms. If you read about a miracle, they can say, well, maybe that isn't true. If you read the letters of Paul where you find the doctrines, they will say, well, I don't know whether I believe this or not. But make them read the Psalms. Because the Psalms are a prayer book and a hymn book. And Luther, when he was reading the Psalms, began to sense something of what God was teaching him there through his word. That's why I had printed from the 34th Psalm in our bulletin, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. Luther could identify with that poor man crying, and the Lord hearing him, and saving him out of all his troubles. I remember once going into a mental institution to visit a friend of mine who was deeply distressed, who was jerking with an unusual jerk and who was terribly afraid and at the point of despair and madness. And I took Psalm 34 and began to read it to him. And my friend has since, by the mercy of God, been strengthened and helped and healed. And often he sends me cards or letters, and he always puts at the bottom of it, thank you for the prescription you gave me. I had written on a piece of a card, uh, the only prescription I can write is Psalm 34, take this three times a day. And so he did. And he began to see that the Lord could hear him and deliver him out of all of his fears. And out of his troubles, and Luther began to seek the Lord in these intimate personal psalms. When he lectured on the 22nd Psalm, he saw that the 22nd Psalm had been cited by Jesus on the cross. And when he read those words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Luther thought, I can understand why God would forsake me, because I am a sinner. But why would he forsake his son and why would Jesus make such a prayer on the cross? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then Luther began to think, he was forsaken for me. He was forsaken for me. And then when Martin Luther began to study the letters of Paul, he came to such magnificent passages as I have printed in one side of your bulletin today from the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being originally in the likeness of God, did not count this something to be grasped, but poured himself out taking a servant's likeness, being made like men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Humbled himself. The Son of God? Then why should the vicar of Christ be seated in a golden chair with rubies and diamonds and gold all over him? Luther began to see that some of what he was watching did not ring true to the scriptures, nor did it ring true to what Jesus was saying. And this is what we need today to come back to. So Luther began to read the letters of Paul. When he got into the epistle to the Romans and he read in Romans chapter 1 that the just shall live by faith. 
he took up a pen and wrote in the margin, solo fide, faith alone, that the only way we can have any rightful peace with God or any happiness with God is when by faith we accept what God has already done for us. And Luther saw that the root of all heresy is when we add the added ingredient of works to it. We try to do our way, and that won't work. And so what is this to do with the Beatitudes? Back to the first one again, and you'll see. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Lloyd C. Douglas has always been one of the favorite authors that our family has loved to read. You've read some of his books, I'm sure, The Big Fisherman. And Lloyd C. Douglas said that when he was a student in school, he had an old music teacher. And he went one day into the music building, and uh, just to pass conversation, he said to his music teacher, what's the good news for the day? And the old teacher, who was a little bit grumpy, turned around and looked at Douglas, and he reached over and he took a mallet and he struck a tuning fork with it, and it vibrated. And when the vibration ceased and the other noises could be heard, the old music teacher said, that, my friend, is A. The soprano upstairs is warbling off key. The tenor in the next room is flatting on his high notes. But that, and he struck it again, he said, is A. It was A yesterday. It's A today, and it'll be A tomorrow. And that's the good news for today. Well, now, now this is what we need to do. Anytime we find trouble with our wives, with our children, with the people that are around about us, we need to go strike A. We need to go strike back at this attitude which Jesus taught those who were about him. We need to seek the mind of Christ. You remember I said that Paul lost his mind on the road to Damascus. And he got the mind of Christ. He became obsessed with the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The same word may be translated attitude or disposition. And this often gets me, and I'm preaching to myself. Uh, when my disposition becomes wrong, my attitude is wrong, is it the disposition of Christ? Would my disposition be such as would cause anybody else, anyone else to want to believe in Jesus? And if it doesn't, what's wrong? then I need to go back to the Beatitudes, back to the attitudes that ought to be. Blessed are the poor in spirit is the first one. Martin Luther, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. When he saw that there was nothing that he could gain through his works, but that all that God had to give him of salvation was already paid for in Christ, and that all he could do to except it was simply to believe, then Christ indwelt him, and the mind of Christ became his, and he began to defend that doctrine that men are justified by faith, and faith alone in Jesus Christ, and that the church needed to be corrected and corrected by scripture alone, and that our lives day by day need to be corrected by scripture and scripture alone. Luther wanted us to know that. Luther wanted us to understand it. And so he embarked upon his teachings. 
And of course, this caused a lot of trouble. When John Tetzel, a Dominican uh, friar, came into his area, he couldn't come into Luther's town, but he got a town right across the river. And uh, he was teaching, selling indulgences there. And when Luther saw one of his parishioners drunk, and he said to Luther, it doesn't make any difference. I bought the right to get drunk. Here's my ticket. And Luther said, you wait till I see you at confessions, <laughs> and I'll straighten this out. And then Luther began to preach against indulgences. And so on October the 31st, the evening of All Saints Day, All Saints Day is on November the 1st, which he observed all the days of his life, right up till the time of his death, he was still observing All Saints Day. They had so many saints that they had to name them one of them All Saints Day. You had St. Martin of Tours, for whom he was named, and then so many others. Well, anyway, Luther nailed his 95 sentences or theses on the door of the castle church. One of them was very uncanny. It said, if the pope is so generous, since he is the richest man in the world, why doesn't he give indulgences away? He's got more money than anyone else. The pope didn't like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, this is what Luther said. And then Luther was criticized because he wished to put the language of the Bible, which was written in, the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew, and Luther wanted to put it into German. And when his superiors came to him, and they said, what, do you mean you want to put the language, uh, the, the Bible into the language of the people? That means that every pot herd and every swine boy, every pot boy and every swine herd and every blacksmith will be interpreting the Bible. Only the learned should interpret the Bible. So Luther said, nonsense. When God sent his son into the world, the angels came and told a bunch of shepherds on the hillside about it. How much learning did these shepherds have? And they got the greatest news in the world. When Jesus picked his disciples upon whom he would build uh, the church that would be spreaded out all over the world, he picked some smelly fishermen. And even the one whom you claim to be the pope, Peter, as the first pope, was a fisherman. So what's wrong with translating the Bible so that the ordinary people can read it? And so Luther had an uncanny logic. He could reason his way. He was a shrewd man. Believe you me, within the past 10 years, Luther's picture has been on the cover of both Time and Newsweek. Time and Newsweek. And yet, what he did principally was 450 years ago. And anytime you pick up something 450 years from now and find the picture of a man who's doing something now, he's going to be quite an outstanding figure. Luther made history wholesale. He changed the whole course of history and he changed it because of this first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They realize that they're bankrupt and so they must depend upon grace alone for salvation. The great slogans of the Reformation were grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, for the glory of God alone. And that is all embodied in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a student of the scripture, you will know that in the 14th chapter of the book of Isaiah, there are verses that tell us about one who is called Lucifer, the fallen angel, 
Isaiah writes, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. In the sides of the north I will ascend up above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Every verb in this passage, every image, points to Satan's desire to rise in God's universe, above God. I will ascend above the clouds, above the stars, above the heavens. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will be like the Most High. Satan boasted he would go up, but the words that follow speak of his destiny. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Now compare that with the words I printed in the bulletin from the second chapter of Philippians about this Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus' disciples were arguing right up till the very night of his, before his crucifixion about which one would be the greatest. And Jesus walked into the upper room, picked up a towel and a bowl and a pitcher of water and poured it out and washed their feet. He wished to teach them humility. Humility is the one grace that when we think we have it, we just lost it. But it ill behooves us to be full of pride. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's how we go into heaven. We cling to what God has already done for us upon the cross. So blessed are the poor the poor in spirit, those who recognize their need of him. Theirs, says Jesus, is the kingdom of heaven. When Luther found this, that great hymn of his could be sung. He knew the great fortress, a mighty fortress is our God. The mind of Christ had taken hold upon him. And his life was soaked up with scripture. And he began to live out a life like that. John Calvin, I greet thee who my sure redeemer art. All of these hymns are meant to teach us these wonderful things. The Reformation gave us a new discovery of God. The Beatitudes do this. They help us in our home because we need to submit to one another to have the attitude in the mind of Christ. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? The gospel of the Reformation was that Jesus Christ was our all-sufficient prophet, our all-sufficient priest, our all-sufficient king, that we are justified by faith alone. The instrument of the Reformation was the preached word of God, proclaiming us, bringing things into conformity with the word. That's what the word reformed means. It means reform agreeably to the word of God. May I conclude by telling you of two who became meek and lowly in heart. Happiness eludes people. 
Jean Paul Getty has died within the past few years. Aristotle Nessus has died within the past few years. Howard Hughes has died within the past few years. The aggregate wealth of these men would be enormous. But how happy really were they? How happy really were they? Happiness is knowing our need of him. Happiness is when he reigns in our heart. When anyone comes and knocks at the door of my heart and asks, who lives here? I reply, Martin Luther used to, but he moved out, and now Jesus lives here. That's good. How do you come to that? You come by believing. You come by believing in him. We had a great English theologian whose name was Barry, B-A-R-R-Y. Dr. Barry had been influenced by a radical school of thought which had little use for the scriptures. He was a great preacher and invited to take one of the great churches here in America, but he did not. He stayed in England and he lived close to Manchester and one night a little girl came and knocked at Dr. Barry's door and she said, are you Dr. Barry? And he said, yes. The little girl said, I want you to come and help me get my mother in. He looked at the poor thing and thought that maybe her mother was drunk and in some bar. And so he suggested to her that she go and get a constable to bring her mother home. No, no, she said, you don't understand. My mother is dying and I want you to come and get her into heaven. Dr. Barry was perplexed, but he saw how pitiful the situation was and so he went with the little girl. I want to read his own words. He told her of the beautiful, the little girl's mother, he saw her dying, and he told her about the loving ministries of Jesus and to follow his example. But she said, that's not for the like of me. I am a sinful woman, and now I'm about to die. It flashed upon me, said Dr. Barry, that I had no message of hope for that dying woman. And like lightning, I leaped in my memory and heart back to the gospel that my mother had taught me. I remember how she had told me of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died to pay the price for my sins. How God had raised him from the dead and how he had gone to prepare a place in heaven for me. And that I could have forgiveness of my sins by believing in what Jesus had done for me that a thief on the cross who had nothing had believed and Jesus had taken him home to heaven. Dr. Barry added, I got her in, and what's more, I got myself in too. He got her in, and he got himself in too, because he believed. He believed in the work of Christ upon the cross. This is what started the Reformation. And this is what's made the difference for us. But in all of this, we need the mind of Christ. Let us bow in prayer. Oh God, our Father, if there is one person here who is doubtful of their salvation, help that one to know that what we've spoken of is real, that heaven is real and hell is real, that judgment is certain, but that there is not a one here who cannot be saved who is, if he is willing to put his or her trust in Jesus, simply by believing, that's the first step. 
they can say yes to you, lead them to that place. For those of us who have known you a long time and somehow get out of tune with your will and purpose for our lives, take us back to the mind of Christ our Savior. Take us back to these beautiful attitudes that he taught us to practice and help us to live in the light of their truth. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our Keeper and our Guide be and abide with you all now and forevermore.